This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. You heard our live coverage there of that news conference with Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart announcing a memorandum of understanding with UBC and uh, Area First Nations there to support a SkyTrain extension all the way to UBC. I think this is the legacy project that Kennedy Stewart wants as mayor, but you would think with all the hoopla, this thing's a done deal. This is not a done deal. They got to get the money first. This is about building support and momentum and trying to convince other levels of government and other municipalities to support this thing. Here's the question, though. What should be built first? What should be built first in Metro Vancouver? Would you say the SkyTrain to UBC? Would you say a new Massey Tunnel? How about a gondola to SFU? That's on the drawing paper, too. Or SkyTrain out to the suburbs? Further SkyTrain expansion in Surrey or the Tri-Cities? At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find the poll today. Make sure you vote on that today. If you don't agree with those ones, maybe you'd write in what you think should be the top priority. At CKNW on Twitter, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line. Leave me a voicemail there and tell me what you think. 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. This is a news conference uh, just kicking off right now with the head of Uber for Western Canada, Michael Van Hemmen. That news conference just getting started. He is expected to announce that Uber is going to court. They are going to go after Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum and the city of Surrey here. Try and get the mayor to back off from writing up those Uber drivers, those bylaw infraction tickets. Remember that the mayor had said he doesn't like ride hailing. He supports the taxi companies. He doesn't want Uber in his town. So he has said that if any of these Uber cars dare to show their fenders on the streets of Surrey, his bylaw enforcement officers be writing them up $500 tickets. Uh, at first, there were warning tickets being issued. Now it's no more Mr. Nice Guy here from the mayor. He says he wants to write $500 tickets. So I suspect what you're going to hear from Uber here is that they will go to court and try and seek some sort of injunction to stop the mayor from doing that. Meanwhile, this fight between the taxi companies and Uber also getting kind of ugly. The Vancouver Taxi Association, they're gone to court too. So they are fighting the Passenger Transportation Board and trying to get Uber's operating licenses canceled. Meanwhile, the taxi companies say they are going to stop subsidizing accessible taxis for people in wheelchairs they say it's not fair that the taxi companies are required to provide accessible vehicles for disabled people they say it costs them money and that the same requirement is not there for uber and lyft so they're mad so in order to show how mad they are they say they're going to stop subsidizing these vehicles you know I think dragging disabled people into this thing is is pretty low. BC Transportation Minister Claire Trevena was asked about it this morning with Simi Sarah. Here's what she said. Very clear that um, this is part of a license uh, for many of the taxi companies that they have to provide accessible vehicles. And we are working very, uh, very quickly to ensure that we have a good mechanism in place. We want to make sure that that money, the 30 cents per trip, actually is used appropriately, um, is used to ensure that we have a growing number of accessible vehicles for people who have various challenges, and that will be our priority. Okay, that 30 cents a trip you heard her mention there, that refers to ride hailing. So the deal is, even though Uber and Lyft not required to provide accessible vehicles, every time you would got into a ride hailing vehicle, if you took an Uber car, you'd be paying 30 cents a trip, and that money would go into a fund to provide more accessible options for people with disabilities and ride hailing. But what about using disabled people as kind of, I guess, a bargaining chip in this fight? Let's check in now with Gurdip Singh Sahoda. He is the general manager of Sunshine Cabs in North Vancouver. 
and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Gurdip. Morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming in. Tell me what you think about this this fight, and especially the the threats by the taxi companies here to say we're not going to we're going to stop subsidizing these accessible taxis. So uh, I just need to remind everybody in the cab business that uh, we are in the business of providing service to our customers. Um, we survive uh, based on the business we get from the public. We provide a public service. And at all times, everything we do should keep uh, the customer uh, right front and center. And uh, I, I, I wish uh, these statements were not made because at the time when we should be uh, making sure that public opinion is on our side, uh, you know, statements like these will alienate the public and we will lose that critical support. How does the system work here for taxi companies? Like, are the taxi companies required to provide accessible vehicles like is sun, our Sunshine Cabs? You're the general manager there. Are you guys required to provide these vehicles? Uh, yes, Mike. Uh, the, the board's policy, and when I say the board, the PTB uh, policy is that anytime a taxi company is applying for uh, any number of licenses, They'll usually, uh, when they award them, uh, they'll give you a certain number of conventional licenses, meaning, you know, uh, licenses where you can operate traditional sedan vehicles and then a certain number of uh, vehicles that have to be uh, wheelchair accessible taxis. Uh, right. In our dispatch, we have to have a priority dispatch plan, meaning if two calls come in at the same time, one is from a person with a disability and the other one is uh, from just uh, somebody wanting a regular cab. The, dis- the, 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 the disabled trip will be dispatched first. So disa- right. disabled passengers have priority and we are duty bound as part of our licensing to give them uh, preference at every stage of our uh, workday. Right. And when the Vancouver Taxi Association says that they're going to stop subsidizing these accessible vehicles, what exactly does that mean according to your understanding? I- I've heard that if a taxi driver gets called out to provide a, a service for a disabled customer, they get a little extra money or something from the from the taxi company? Yeah, so, you know, as part of the licensing, now, you know, because we're providing a public service, we can't charge the customers extra. But, right. uh, you know, historically, uh, it, it costs a lot more money to, A, acquire these vehicles and then operate them. And sometimes, you know, some companies find difficulty getting drivers who will drive them because, you know, it costs more money. And then sometimes you're taken out of your way in the sense that, you know, you could have been getting, for example, a, uh, you know, from the North Shore, just to give you an example, $60 fare to YVR. But, you know, maybe 30 seconds before that, uh, you know, if you get a wheelchair trip, which is a local trip, you have to take that. And in order to, you know, incentivize the driver, some companies will pay them a little extra uh, to, you know, make it worth their while. So uh, that it's highly likely that that was the subsidy that our friends in in the VTA were referring to. Right. And that would mean that it could mean that a, a disabled person waiting for a cab might have more difficulty now getting a taxi, right? They have difficulty getting cab at the best of times because it's always yeah. a challenge in the sense that, you know, uh, you know, um, the drivers who are driving the wheelchair accessible taxis also get uh, all of the other regular trips. So, you know, they could be on a trip out to the airport from the North Shore, for example, just to give you an example. And if somebody calls for a wheelchair van, you know, we will have to tell them, sorry, you know, you know, we can't send you one for another half hour or so. So, yeah, at the best of times, it's a, it's, it's a challenge to provide this, this level of service and uh, we should. We, we try our best, but it's a challenge. You and I were corresponding about this last night, Gurdip, and you're a taxi guy, but I know that you you don't think this is a wise move by the taxi companies here to bring disabled people into it. Tell, tell me about that. Tell me about your thoughts and your feelings on this. Well, like I said, and I was, you know, we were talking last night too, you know, and, you know, we, we are at a very critical juncture uh, in the life of our industry. And, uh, we desperately need uh, public support. Uh, you know, we're disappointed that the government has not brought in uh, a level playing field. We've got the resources, we've got the drivers, and we're hum- hamstrung in our ability to provide service and compete uh, with the uh, ride hailing on an even playing field. Um, you know, issue in point is uh, 
the boundaries which are curtailing our ability to provide timely service. So, you know, rather than, you know, talk about these issues which uh, are systemic issues, which are historical, you know, grievances that ought to be corrected in 2020, we're actually, you know, stirring up a hornet's nest, you know, you know, we shouldn't be doing that. That's my own opinion. You, you mentioned that you had a disability yourself when you were a kid, right? Yeah, I was uh, born with uh, club feet. I underwent extensive surgeries on both my feet and my legs and was not able to walk properly till I was about eight years old. I was you know, lucky that uh, my dad was in the Indian Army, so I got world-class treatment in the UK when he was transferred there on a diplomatic posting. Otherwise, I may not have been walking today. So, uh, you know, comments like that uh, hurt close to home, and I take those personally. Right. So when we see disabled people being kind of dragged into this, like you said, that that's kind of a personal thing for you. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what When you speak out like this, and but don't you think, though, that the fact that the ride-hailing companies are not required to provide accessible vehicles... Isn't that, isn't that unfair to the taxi companies? I think it is. Uh, and uh, in other jurisdictions, this issue has come up as well. And uh, various jurisdictions have found different solutions. The one which is most common is a per-trip fee that is imposed. And in some jurisdictions, right-hailing companies have actually contracted uh, other third-party uh, companies that have wheelchair-accessible vehicles, and they will, um, you know, give them all the trips. I think that may be the case in in Ontario or the Toronto area, but here the BC government has uh, decided to use the per-trip levy, uh, which would then be uh, paid to companies providing disability uh, services, and that could potentially include uh, taxi companies as well. And so, you know, so there will be some kind of mechanism to subsidize the operation of these vehicles. And I'm, let me reiterate that it is very uh, cost prohibitive and uh, we're able to only charge the same meter rate uh, f- for our passengers who are disabled as all right. able-bodied passengers. So, uh, so, so it's a challenge. Uh, uh, Talking to Gurdip Singh Sahoda, General Manager of Sunshine Cabs in North Van, it's interesting to hear your perspective on it I guess I guess advocating for a little bit more to settle things down a little bit to try and get the public on side you're questioning the tactics of the other taxi companies here in this fight with with Uber are you getting any pushback from some of the other taxi companies in the Metro Vancouver saying hey Gerdep what are you talking about well you know I'm I'm not going to talk about internal differences that we have but mm-hmm. uh you know like I said you know my efforts and uh those of our board and our company and our association are that we want to make sure that we have the public on our side. Right, uh, you right. Know, they, we need to let them know if there are historical inaccuracies or you know other problems that are holding us back. And the boundary issue is is a huge one for us. And anybody that we've talked to, and when you tell them, you know, we have to dead head back, and that means fifty percent of the time our business is closed. It's a it's a no brainer. How come you know you guys are not allowed to pick up where you drop off? So. Right now, I'm sitting in your studios here in downtown Vancouver. I, I just drove by the Hotel Vancouver. There's no cabs there. And, you know, if there was uh, another cab from the airport that I could have picked up, there was three people there. They could have been on their way. So we need to, you know, solve those problems okay. instead of creating new ones. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure, Mike. Thank I appreciate it a lot. Gurdip Singh Sahoda. He is the general manager of Sunshine Cabs in North Vancouver. Let's talk about the fight now between Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum and Uber, the latest chapter here. Uber going to court now, seeking a court injunction against the city of Surrey to stop those bylaw enforcement officers from writing up those threatened $500 tickets to Uber drivers who dared across the boundary and go into Doug McCallum's Bayou here. He doesn't want Uber in his town. He wants them to get out of there. He supports the taxi companies. Here's the problem, though. I mean, the provincial government has legalized Uber and Lyft to operate in Metro Vancouver. You heard on your news there, Premier John Horgan telling McCallum to stand down, stop hassling these Uber drivers and let them operate. I don't think that McCallum will back down based on that. 
if a judge steps in though and orders them to not write any tickets to Uber drivers, I think that's a different story. But what about this fight now? I mean, you've got a service here that's been approved legally to operate in Metro Vancouver by the senior level of government here in the provincial government, and you got a municipal government telling them to get out of town. Let's talk about that now with my guest, David Clement. He is the North American Affairs Manager for the Consumer Choice Center. That's a consumer advocacy organization. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for coming on. What do you think about what's going on here? Ooh, what a absolute disaster. I mean, consumers in, in BC have been waiting long enough for ride-sharing to be legal. Uh, it, it took far too long by pretty much every measure. Finally, they get the, the ball across the line. And then here we have, as you said, so you made, you made Mayor McCallum sound like Sheriff McCallum. Uh, <laughs> trying to try to keep out those pesky Uber drivers. Yeah, that's right. Um, here we have we have uh, Sheriff McCallum uh, basically wanting to pick a fight with a legal service that's already um, checked all of the boxes in regards to consumer safety and compliance with, like you said, the superior um, legislative body. And so this, from our perspective, is just blatant cronyism. Okay. Um, this is. This is just a. This is unfortunately uh, a mayor who wants to protect the taxi industry from competition. Yeah, and how do you see that as cronyism? That it's like that because the taxi company supported him in the elections, and so now it's like what payback time? Oh, I mean it's possible. I haven't I haven't looked through the financial records for whether or not um, for whether or not there's any link there. But what what I will say is it's pretty clear from his response that um, he is not open to any type of competition. And even when asked, well, what what would happen if these ride-sharing companies applied for a license? Would you give them one? And he said no. Um, So this isn't really about consumer safety. It isn't about the community. It's simply uh, his rules or his apparent rules, which... um, based on my legal analysis, are, are not going to hold up in court. Um, and, yeah, he's, he's basically punishing, uh, punishing consumers in the city who just want more choice and more options for how they get around. Shouldn't a municipal government have some authority here on what goes on inside their own borders, though? I mean, we got, we got a system with legal marijuana, for example, where the provincial government has said that they're not going to put a, a legal pot shop into a city that doesn't want it and no one seems to be raising too much of a fuss about that here you have a municipal government saying we don't want ride-sharing vehicles in our town why is it any different like why should he not be allowed to say that what they don't want in their own in his own city yeah i mean on its face i i think that that's a relatively compelling argument but i would i would bet quite a bit of money that if you polled people within surrey um, or you polled any of those dry communities when it comes to cannabis shops, how they actually feel, I guarantee you it would be more than 50% of folks in that jurisdiction who would support these legal services. Um, yeah. And so what we have is we have special interest jockeying uh, in, terms of, um, in terms of who gets to trump, uh, who, who trumps each other uh, policy-wise. And I think it's also important to evaluate the mayor's claims on what he's actually saying. So he's saying that he wants to keep Uber out for uh, reasons that have to do with community safety. Uh, But we know that the longer that ride sharing is not available, uh, the more community safety is actually at risk in terms of things like impaired driving um, and ride sharing already meeting the qualifications from the provincial government. And so um, I'm sympathetic to the decentralization argument that, generally speaking, lower government bodies should be able to um, determine some of their own fate. Definitely, uh, generally on board with that. But when we take his claims at, at face value here, it's obvious that uh, he's speaking. At, uh, he, he's he's it's it's a bunch of double talk. It's not. Uh, it has nothing to do with community safety, and it has everything to do with protecting a particular industry. Speaking to David Clement from the Consumer Choice Center, they're a group that advocates for, uh, on behalf of consumers, he thinks consumers in Surrey should be able to call an Uber car if they want to. The mayor Mm -hmm. also says that this is a fairness argument with the taxi companies, that 
the the ride sharing companies have been given a special deal here and that he wants the quote unquote level playing field that everyone talks about with the taxi companies. So he says, for example, the taxi cabs are not allowed to go across uh, municipal boundaries in Metro Vancouver, which I think is crazy, but those are the rules. These ride-sharing drivers can go wherever they want in the in the mm-hmm. whole re- in the whole region. He says yep. the insurance, the auto insurance for ride-sharing is cheaper than what it is for taxis. The ride-sharing companies can charge cheaper prices than they can than the taxi companies are required to charge. So there's predatory pricing going on, and the ride-share companies can undercut the cab companies. Are the, are those compelling arguments in your mind for th- this is not fair to the taxi companies? So it's a compelling argument to deregulate the taxi industry. It is not a compelling argument to overregulate ride sharing. If if equity is something that um, one is particularly passionate about, and I can be sympathetic to some of those arguments, let's let taxis go across municipal boundaries. Let's right. deregulate the licensing process for them so that the fees are not so exorbitant. Let's allow for some flexibility in terms of rates. Let's open the market up. Let's have competition. And what's great here is Surrey doesn't even have to reinvent the wheel because there are jurisdictions all over, not not just North America, but Europe, who basically went about it that way. They said, okay, well, we're compelled. Like, we agree. Let's not, let's not, um, let's not completely um, ignore the existing industry. So let's make it a little easier for them to operate so that we do have a level, level playing field and have that competition. And what you have actually in many jurisdictions where that happens is you have vibrant competition between the two. And the people who benefit the most from that are consumers because all of a sudden customer service is better, your rates are better, availability and responsiveness is better, tracking is better. And so it's a real win-win. And so um, if equity is something that is... Um, is compelling to you as an argument. I'd argue that that's uh, that is a perfect justification for lowering the bar, not raising it. Okay, you're with uh, an international organization that advocates for consumers. When you take a look mm-hmm. at the way that ride sharing is working in other jurisdictions, and you just briefly touched on it, I mean these are yep. services that are commonplace in big cities all around the world. And for for people in Vancouver and British Columbia who've traveled outside of the province. A lot of people are familiar with the service because anywhere you go, you just automatically use these Uber services. I've used it in other cities, and it works great. Um, mm-hmm. When you take a look at how ride-sharing has been operating in other cities, I heard you make, make the case there that it's working well. There's been some trouble spots, though, right? I mean, if you take a look at like New York City, for example, where they had to put a cap on the number of new ride-hailing vehicles because there was traffic congestion in Manhattan and other places. So um, is there a problem? Has there been many problems in other cities with things like Carmageddon, too many cars on the street creating traffic gridlock? Oh, sure, sure. And there have been hiccups. I mean, there are always hiccups when you have any type of disruption like this, and there is a bit of a learning curve. Uh, I mean, New York City is a is a unique example just because it's the most, it's one of the most high-demand um, automobile cities in the world. Um, and so it is, it is fairly unique, uh, in that sense. Um, so I don't think that Surrey is going to be, I don't think there's an impending Carmageddon coming for Surrey, um, by legalizing car sharing by any means. And I think what we have to realize is that the need, why does car sharing exist? Why does a ride sharing exist? Why does Uber or Lyft exist? Well, they exist because, the demand for these services outweighs the supply for transport. And so we have to allow for that correction. And sometimes you can swing a little too far. Um, That can certainly happen. Um, But by no means is that what I think is going to happen in Surrey um, if Mayor McCallum were to to cool his jets a little bit. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. You bet. I appreciate it. David Clement, he is the North American... A public affairs manager for the Consumer Choice Center there, making the case for Uber in Surrey. This one's going to end up in court. Uber arguing for a court injunction here to stop the mayor and the city of Surrey from writing up those $500 bylaw infraction tickets for Uber vehicles in Surrey. Let me time for our health series. In the last several years, the keto diet has gained popularity as a mainstream weight loss program. While there's anecdotal evidence that it works, questions remain about its long-term use. Shona Thompson now investigates. 
According to the most recent study from the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, an additional 1.7 million Canadians will be obese by the year 2023. That report was written in 2017. We're now just three years away from that milestone. As people attempt to fight the battle of the waistline bulge, many are taking a look at the ketogenic diet as being a viable option in getting the number on the scale to head down. Tammy Crowley of Welland, Ontario is one of them. She's been following the ketogenic program for two years, has lost 35 pounds, and kept it off. She says over the years, she's tried everything from diet programs to more drastic measures. Starving yourself, um, just every every program. I don't want to specifically say anyone because, I, you know, it's, everyone's different and whatever works for you is great. I just found something that finally worked for me. I've actually, through the years, I've had um, gastric bypass for losing weight. And yes, that was great at the beginning, but you put it back on. It's not an easy fix. Unless you learn properly what is good for you, then that's the best way to go. You know, so I'm not running any of the other programs down. It's just, this is works for me. I've never felt better. Almost going to be 60 soon? Yes, um, I have more energy than I had when I was in my 20s. Using the keto diet as part of a long-term lifestyle is still an unknown, but there are medical uses for the regimen. One is treating children with epilepsy. Jennifer Fabay, registered nutritionist with the Division of Pediatric Neurology at McMaster's Children's Hospital, says the therapeutic ketogenic diet has been used as a treatment for epilepsy for nearly a century. However, she stresses it is customized for each patient and only used when people meet certain medical criteria and are monitored regularly. Dr. Andrew Mente, an epidemiologist with the Population Health Research Institute at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, says the keto diet is interesting and has benefits for those with diabetes. An interesting diet, conceptually, it is a diet that is high in fat, adequate in protein, and very low in carbohydrates. And conceptually, this diet would make sense for people with carbohydrate intolerance, i.e. people with uh, type 2 diabetes, in controlling their glucose levels and possibly even reversing their, their diabetes. In people from general populations, generally healthy populations without diabetes, the evidence is less clear. So what we would need going forward is more studies to investigate both the effectiveness and the safety of a ketogenic diet in general populations. Mente says the ketogenic diet is one approach for diabetes, but it's not the diet for people with diabetes. He adds it's too soon to say what the long-term impacts may be on both those with type 2 diabetes and for the general population as a lifestyle eating program. The doctor says the best idea for those without medical issues requiring a keto diet is a balanced approach. A nuanced approach uh, is uh, seldomly uh, promoted. Everybody seems to take an extreme position on uh, a variety of matters, and, and diet is no different. But uh, certainly for general populations, I would say a nuanced approach is more appropriate going forward until we get the evidence, because we want to make recommendations that are evidence-based for general populations. But what about using the keto diet as a lifestyle for weight loss? Dan Tisi is a registered dietitian at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton. He says there are pros and cons to it. However, for just weight loss, he views it as another tool in the toolbox. With ketogenics having an emphasis on certain fats and proteins, TC says people need to be aware of the nutrition that may be missing from their diet. A lot of people will uh, have to do supplementation of some kind um, with higher quality supplements because there does tend to be a B vitamin deficiency. Uh, electrolytes are the most common thing that's missing usually. Uh, they're also responsible for things like the keto flu that people experience in the beginning, especially the electrolyte part, and magnesium would be added to that as well. Although, that's a tough one to say because most North Americans are deficient in magnesium. TC says it's best if you're going ahead with a keto diet to do it with the assistance of someone that can really assess your situation and help you determine if this is the tool you should be reaching for. For someone like Tammy Crowley, who struggled with weight issues for most of her life, she's not willing to easily let go of something that's worked. Crowley is aware that some cardiologists have concerns about keto with the emphasis on full fat and high protein, and so does she. Her father died at the age of 51 from a heart attack, and she says that does play on her mind. She says she did a lot of research before starting keto, and Crowley is willing to shoulder that risk. I'd rather feel as good as I feel right now and only live, let's say, the next five years than live the next 10 and feel like crap. <laughs> For Global News Radio, I'm Shona Thompson. The uh, fight between Uber and the city of Surrey. Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum just in the last hour taking to Twitter to double down here in his fight against 
Uber, as he calls them, Uber drivers who continue to pick up in Surrey can expect to start receiving $500 fines from bylaw officers. That's Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum here in the last hour on Twitter. He adds, I stand by this. Doug McCallum putting Uber on notice here. If you dare to show up in the city of Surrey, they're going to wallop you with a $500 fine from Surrey Bylaw Enforcement Officers. Uber not taking this lying down. They're going to court. Uber is seeking a court injunction here to prevent the city of Surrey from hitting them hitting them with $500 fines. I got a feeling that Uber will win that one. We'll see. This service has been legalized by the provincial government. You don't have to have a law degree to know that the senior level of government is going to trump the lower level here. So once you got the provincial government saying that this service is free to operate throughout Metro Vancouver, I don't know how the city keeps them out. But Doug McCallum certainly trying here in the last hour, putting Uber on notice again, $500 fines if you show up in Surrey. We'll see where this one goes in court. Meanwhile, the fight escalating here on this, including dragging disabled people into this. I think this is despicable, really. The Vancouver Taxi Association, they're not happy with Uber. They're suing, too. They're trying to get Uber's operating license overturned in court. Good luck with that. I think they're going to lose that one, too. But in the meantime, the taxi company saying, we will no longer subsidize wheelchair-accessible taxis here. And their complaint here is that Uber and Lyft and these other ride-hailing companies not required to provide accessible vehicles like the taxis are required to provide. So the taxi company is saying, we will no longer subsidize the operation of these wheelchair accessible vehicles. I think that's that's a low blow in my opinion. Let's check in with Stephanie Cadu now. She's the BC Liberal MLA for South Surrey. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi. Hi Mike, how are you? Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think about this fight here in the city of Surrey? Well, the fight in the city of Surrey is one thing, <laughs> uh, for sure. Uh, and you know, what the, the NDP has created such a mess with their rollout of ride hailing. Um, I just I just don't even know where to start when it comes to that. Um, well, as, as a, as a Surrey, as a, yeah, I mean, you're a Surrey MLA. Yeah. So when you talk to your yeah. constituents, what are they telling you? Everybody is, was happy. It was finally approved to operate yeah. and frustrated that it wasn't approved to operate necessarily everywhere or, or able to, um, but at least they, they were happy. At least the lower mainland was going to have access and, and, the, when I'm what I'm seeing and hearing, um, they're they're not impressed with the, the mayor's stance and uh, approach here in Surrey. What do you think about um, the taxi companies saying they'll no longer sub- subsidize these wheelchair accessible taxis? You use a wheelchair yourself. Yeah. I mean, do you rely on wheelchair accessible taxis now and then? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure um, you do. I, I mean, I drive my own car most of the time, but there's yeah. there's plenty of times when I'm in Vancouver and I need to go a short distance or, or what have you, and I want to take an accessible cab. I take accessible cabs when I'm in other in other towns and other cities. Um, and, you know, for the most part, I would say as a user uh, and as a frequent traveler to other parts of the world and Canada, we've been very lucky in the Lower Mainland. Um, British Columbia sort of led the way in the push for accessible uh, taxis, um, and we the, the the taxi companies did what they needed to do and 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 did that. And there's always there's complaints and service and things like that, and yeah. fair enough, those things can be resolved. But we had a good level of service in terms of the number of of cabs that that could accommodate uh, a large large number of wheelchair users, and the reality is that. When the committee looked at ride hailing, I was on that committee, um, right. all party committee. We looked at this issue pretty substantially, and we looked at the issue of uh, what was happening in other places when Uber and Lyft came in, that, and and well, you know, did that cannibalize uh, the accessible transportation from the taxi services, etc.? And what could they do? What couldn't they do on their platforms to improve accessibility? We put forward a bunch of recommendations and the NDP uh, didn't go with any of those uh, in the rollout. So it's understandable that they've created this uh, 
this challenge for themselves uh, now. But I do think it's it's as you say, despicable for the taxi companies yeah. to use people with disabilities as pawns in their fight with government. Their yeah. fight is with government. It's not with people with disabilities who need who need that transit and already have the fewest you know, fewest options around transportation a lot of the time and, and really truly rely on the availability of that service. No, I agree with you. I think leave disabled people out of this, okay? I mean, you know, I don't think the taxi companies are doing themselves any public relations favors here by dragging no. disabled people into this. I mean, if anything, I think they're, they're sacrificing any public support that they, they might have here by doing that. So I hope they give that a rethink. When you talk about the, uh, the, the, one of the reasons the taxi companies are angry about this mm-hmm. situation is that they say they are required by law to offer these wheelchair accessible taxis right. as part of their operating license and the right. ride hailing companies are not. The ride hailing companies are not required to do that. Do they have a point? I think, I think they do, which is why we put forward a number of, of options to counteract that um, in the report and recommendations for what should go, what, what government should consider when approving ride hailing. The, the challenge is, of course, uh, and we need to have all the facts on the table, I think, Mike, uh, yeah. companies, taxi companies are required to provide accessible transportation once they hit a certain fleet size. So, let, you know, there are plenty of towns and communities around this province that do not have accessible taxi service. I know because I've had to go to those places and try to get around. But, you know, there are accessible vehicles cost more money uh, and they cost more money to to buy, to maintain and to operate. Uh, And so that has to be factored in to the equation when we're looking at ride hailing, which is not the same thing as a company that owns its cars we're talking about uh, a company that facilitates individuals using their own vehicles to transport other people. Right. And we also have to remember that there are people with disabilities of all types, uh, many of whom, some manually wheelchair users, some people who are blind or, or what have you, that have a disability for whom an Uber and a Lyft is going to work really well and provide uh, significantly more transportation options to them. And that's a good thing. But there are people who are not going to be able to use an average vehicle. And the companies that are operating, we, if we're going to allow them to operate, we need to ensure that, that they have to provide that service in some way or another. And how do we ensure that they are contributing to adding and improving the, the availability of accessible transportation options, right, right. Not, de- not detracting from it? And I think the taxis do have an argument with government here. But I don't think they they can or should be allowed to to use uh, people with disabilities as pawns in their fight. And it's the government's obligation to solve this. And from what I've seen so far, Minister Trevena and the NDP have not come to the table uh, in defense of people with disabilities at all. Do you think the government missed an opportunity here? I mean... They had Uber and Lyft pretty much right where they wanted them. I mean, these companies are just begging to get into this market. Could they not have required, say, okay, we're going to let you operate, but you have to figure out a way to to offer wheelchair-accessible vehicles. Now, what they did do was they brought in this $0.30-a-ride fee, and they're going to use that money to, I guess, pay into some... What what is that money for, the $0.30 per ride fee? We don't know. And that's part of the problem. That may, in its, in some form, be able to do something. It's, it, there was a, a version of that in our report. But you have to outline ahead of time how that's going to work, who yeah. it's going to benefit, and how. And right now, it doesn't do any of those things. So I agree. Uber and Lyft wanted to operate. They operate in cities around the world. They have all sorts of different programs and things they're trialing in different locations as to provide accessible transportation. They were willing. Uh, I've asked them all the tough questions, I guarantee you, on this. And I believe there are options to be found. And I think that British Columbia could lead with them in, in ensuring we do the best job of this. But you can't do that if you don't set out a plan. You can't do it if you just ignore the problem and hide and say, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out later, which is what the NDP appear to be doing. The situation as it stands right now is just in the last hour, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum is kind of doubling down saying, you Uber cars better better stay out of my town or we're going to write you up $500 tickets. 
Uber is going to court to try and fight that. When the provincial yeah. government is asked, what are you guys doing about this? Who's in who's in control here? I mean, is it is John Horgan in control or is Doug McCallum in charge? Because the provincial government legalized this service, That's right. permitted it to operate in Metro Vancouver. And when uh, Premier John Horgan mm-hmm. was asked today, what should what should they do about it? And he said, well, go to court. Just go to court and fight them. Is that an adequate response, do you think, or do you think the, the B.C. government should be stepping in here more aggressively to get these services up and running in Surrey? It's absolutely not an, an acceptable response. Premier Horgan and Minister Trevena are completely MIA on this. The NDP MLAs are nowhere to be found. They haven't made comment on this at all. The reality is the, the, the citizens of Surrey want this. The, the individuals who want to have the opportunity to drive and earn a little money you, as, a, as a driver for Uber or Lyft want this and their residents of Surrey. So I don't, I, you know, the mayor's position is the mayor's position and he's entitled to it, of course. But the, but the province has set the rules and the province has set the, the operating license for these companies. And now they yeah. need to step in and ensure that those companies are able to do their job. But what can they do, though? I mean, is John Horgan supposed to march into Doug McCallum's office and hold him down and and say, "Listen, you better let these Uber cars operate." I mean, what is what? What can the province actually do? Well, in my experience, most things can be resolved if you sit down and have a conversation about how you're going to do that. Okay. But I haven't seen that happen. Thanks very much for coming on. You're welcome, Mike. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. That's Stephanie Cadieu. She is the BC Liberal MLA for South Surrey. David Eby, the Attorney General, holding a news conference earlier today saying some changes coming to ICBC, including ICBC hiring a fairness commissioner. So if you have a complaint about ICBC, uh, now you'll have someone to complain to. Uh, he said ICBC also committing to plain language reporting. So they say they have to do a better job of explaining to people why your auto insurance is going through the roof. There's a failure to communicate is the problem here. It's not because people are getting wall up with huge rate hikes. It's just they're not explaining it to you properly, so they're going to fix that too. I think the heat's on here. I think the heat's on this government. I think the heat's on this attorney general about ICBC. Yesterday on the show, we talked about a new report just came up from the Insurance Bureau of Canada. They represent the private insurance companies. I know they got, they got partisan interests here, but I thought this was an interesting report. And it took a look at insurance rates comparing BC and Alberta, of course, where they got private insurance. Surprise, surprise, Alberta insurance cheaper here, according to this report. I had David Eby on the show yesterday. I asked him about Alberta insurance. Here's what he told me. I certainly acknowledge that people can find uh, cheaper insurance in Alberta. The issue is that they get less insurance for their money. So, for example, if you're in a single car crash in British Columbia, you hit some black ice and spin out, you're covered for $300,000 in injury. But if you do the same accident in Alberta, you're covered for $50,000. And if you don't think that's significant, if you hit a moose and you're rendered quadriplegic or you have to use a wheelchair, if you don't think that's a big difference between $50,000 and $300,000, you haven't tried living with those kinds of injuries. Yeah, but... And, and so so the, the cost in part is that the benefits aren't as good. Okay, I was trying. what I was trying to get to him there was to point out that the payouts, the actual actual payouts that people receive who are injured in car accidents in Alberta and B.C., pretty much the same. So the limits on the payouts higher in B.C., but the actual payouts of money people are receiving are actually about the same between the two provinces. But insurance rates higher in British Columbia compared to Alberta. Let's check in with Chris Sims now, BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I'm pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Chris. Hi, thanks for having me on. I know this is an important issue for you, ICBC. What do you think about the government's announcement today on a fairness commissioner, plain language reporting? Is this a good thing? Well, we're always in favor of more transparency. And if they yeah. can make things uh, more plain language, easier to understand, that's a good thing. But the bad news is it'll probably just be more bad news. And is it better to have that more clearly explained? I guess. Uh, but, you know, we try to give praise where we can. 
it's nice to see that it's going to be a bit more transparent, more plain language. But at the end of the day, I think most drivers care about the fact that they're getting screwed over on their rates, that we're paying the highest rates in Canada and we're locked in. I, I speak to people all the time who say they feel trapped with this thing because they can't shop around. They've got no option. And to his point that he was mentioning there on the limits, yes, the limits are different. But as you point out, the payouts are almost exactly the same. Yeah. And further, shouldn't we have a choice? What if, I, what if I want a different level of insurance and I, as a sentient thinking adult, want to shop around for and choose a different level or rate or method of insurance in order to suit my budget or my needs? Shouldn't we be allowed to do that in BC? The idea that we're not is, is strange. And I can only point to personal experience. I was born and raised in British Columbia, first got my driver's license here. The moment I could get it, I lived away. I lived in Ontario and Nova Scotia came back here two years later, and I almost fainted when I saw how much my insurance rate would be. As a perfect driver, I've got a completely clean, spotless record, and I drive like a mom mobile. And that experience is over and over again with folks that you meet who come here from another province. They go, oh my gosh, why are you guys paying this? So when I hear a smart man like David Eby say, oh, well, you can pick and choose and cherry pick some lower rates some other part of the country... That's not the bulk of the experience. Most people I talk to who come here from away are shocked at how much they're paying. Yeah, I think people, a lot of people have had similar experiences if they come from other provinces and they, they get a little sticker shock from auto insurance here. The other thing that's going on is the rate increases being charged by ICBC, especially for like young drivers. I mean, yes. I've heard from a lot of young drivers just getting absolutely walloped with huge uh, insurance premiums. to insure, you know, not an expensive automobile. I think that's what's going on. I think this government's feeling the heat here. There's another rate hike coming next month, and I think they're trying to soften the public up for it. I agree. And anecdotally speaking, I was getting some of the pictures that we had done recently of our fun, more fun things that we try to do, like our dumpster fire and things like that. I was getting those developed. And the young man at the counter, when I came back to get them picked up, he said, I like your pictures. And he was a young guy. He was like 19 or 20. And I said, oh, which ones? He said, well, ICBC ones, because I can barely afford it. And I just asked him, he pays, Mike, nearly $400 a month for a 2009 little hatchback. I just, I said, how? And he said, well, I can barely do it. There's some months where I'll go and I'll have to cancel and then I can't get to work. And now I'm able to pick up more shifts overnight. This is a young guy. And I'm able to just afford insurance. He said, before that, I was hoping to try to share a car with a buddy, but now I can't do that. Like, if I had had that kind of albatross around my neck when I was a young person striking out and making some money and getting jobs, I wouldn't have been able to. I would have been stuck at home. Yeah, this is why I think this is a political problem for this government, because as we get closer to another election, I think the liberals are going to try and make this an election issue, and I think it could be a good one for them, depending how they frame it. Now, have a listen to this, Chris. Yesterday on the show, I spoke to B.C. liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson, and he has been highly critical of ICBC, as you know. I've been trying to pin him down for months on exactly what a liberal government would do to fix ICBC and he's kind of does the duck and dodge thing usually. But yesterday I kind of pinned him down a little bit. Here's what he said. I'm a lot less worried about ICBC and a lot more worried about British Columbia and their ability to get by and afford to live in this province. We've seen dramatic increases in insurance rates, sometimes going up to $7,000. We've seen the invoices from places like Penticton and Cranbrook. In my own family, we've had one of them double overnight when it was renewed oh. in January. And you start to think, isn't there a better way to do this? I mean, why can't we find out how it's done elsewhere? And why can't we get um, the right kind of authority in British Columbia to put the choices on the table and let British Columbians make up their own minds? Okay, he also said that he believes ICBC should compete against the private sector for basic auto insurance. And I know that caught your attention. It really did. Uh, I was in your same boat. I've been very politely trying to seek some clarity from the BC Liberals on this very issue because we want change. We don't care if it's the flying monkey party who does it. We just want change so the people aren't paying these rates. And so I've been asking for clarity too. And hearing him say, 
I quote, I think ICBC should be open to competition. That's the whole idea so that people have a choice. If ICBC can compete in that marketplace, then we might still have ICBC. But this idea that somehow you're going to privatize a company that loses a billion dollars a year, who's going to buy that? He clearly said he thinks it should be open to competition. Here's the automatic comeback to that argument from people who support ICBC. They say if you do that, if you break up ICBC's monopoly here and you, you make ICBC compete against these private companies and give these private companies a piece of the action, these private companies, all they care about is profit. They are going to cream off the lowest risk drivers and all the risky drivers that are getting into accidents and texting on their cell phone behind the wheel. They're the ones who are going to get stuck being insured by ICBC as the insurer of last resort. How do you respond to that? Because I think that's the fear that maybe a lot of people have about it. So I'm not an insurance expert, but I have read a lot about this. And the way I've had it explained to me, and again, I've lived in other jurisdictions that have open private competition for insurance. In Ontario and Nova Scotia, I paid way less, way less. I went to one broker, they compared a whole bunch of different rates, and I picked the best one. So it was just a huge amount of money I saved. So this is how I imagine this would work. They fully compete, period. The good drivers, guess what? If you're a really good driver and you're low risk, you're going to pay less for insurance. That's how this works. If you're a really crappy driver and you're getting into constant accidents or speeding tickets or texting, you should pay more because that is how the risk works. But this is the key, and I've heard it explained before, this notion that somehow there are hordes and hordes of people, young people or people who get in all these accidents who are uninsurable and wandering the streets of Ontario – I worked in talk radio for 15 years. Not once did we get that phone call. Not one time saying, I can't get to work because they won't insure me. What they do is the different companies all go in together and they take turns insuring a high-risk person. So it's almost like where you say, this is a weird analogy, where, where you have like a low-cost spay and neuter clinic, something like that, and the veterinarians come in and they volunteer their time and they take turns. They do shifts. That's similar, as I've had it explained to me, what private insurance companies do. They say, okay, "Okay, so Mike is a big risk. He costs a lot of money. Let's move him around until he gets a better driving record. We'll each take turns, and then eventually his premium will go down because he hopefully becomes a better driver. Doug in Port Moody, hi. Mike and Chris, uh, just a quick story. I'm a 61-year-old driver. Uh, I haven't had an at-fault accident ever. I haven't had a traffic ticket since I was 17 years old. So with the announcement, uh, was it last summer, about the changing rates and good drivers paying less and bad drivers paying more, I was really looking forward to what would happen in uh, mid-January. I went and renewed, and my insurance slightly went up. Yeah. So the only way I was told that it could go down is if I was 65 years old. So to me, that kind of seems backwards. At some point, you would think my faculties or my reaction time might decrease. Once again, it was a marginal increase, but it went up. So if I went up, I don't know who's going down. Okay, Doug, thanks for the call. Well, I guess the situation, Chris, is that for a guy like Doug, who's a safe driver and has got a clean record, that his insurance went up, but if the government hadn't hadn't changed the system, it would have gone up even more. Yes. So I guess he's, you know, the government's saying, well, people are going to pay more, but if you're a good driver, you'll pay less less more. more. Less more, okay? It was an interesting point when they first made that announcement, and I I found it kind of sad. They (laughs) said, bad drivers will pay more, good drivers will pay less than they otherwise would have been. Yeah, right, less more. Less more, that's correct. That's too bad. It's, It's really too bad. Yeah, Doug, you should be happy. That's the thing. You should be happy that your insurance rate's only going up a little bit. James in Pitt Meadows, hi. Hey there. uh, I just came back from working in Calgary for a year, and really a lot of the things you're talking about are no different. My kid could not get insurance for anything under seven grand uh, because he's considered a male, young, newer driver, and that put him in the highest category risk. So if what I'm hearing from you, it doesn't sound like any difference. Now, okay. my insurance was significantly less, but I heard nonstop horror stories from people I was working with about what happens when these private insurers go to battle over each other to see who's going to pay. There are, both, there are two sides of it. You're right. And I guess the argument from the private insurance companies, Chris, is that if you don't like the rate you've been quoted, you can go to another company. And that's the thing. Rate. 
Yeah, I think that's the thing. A lot of people, hopefully your rate will go down, but at least you'll have a choice. I think yeah. for a lot of us here in BC who want to see open competition for ICBC, for auto insurance, is that we have no choice right now. Right. We are being forced to pay whatever this is, and it's over $1,800 on average per person per year, and we've got no option. That's what I find most upsetting. David in Abbotsford, hi. Hey there. So after listening to your show yesterday, about 15 of us just decided to do a quick little survey right across Canada using our trucks for ages and our driving experience. Most of us are all in our 50s to early 60s. And um, some of us had previous driving experience in Alberta, and uh, I will disagree with what they say about Alberta rates because they are way more. But after all of it said and done, Manitoba has the best and cheapest insurance. So not only... The two things we looked at, one was the cost, and the second thing is, is what they actually, what you get for it in an accident. Uh, Manitoba has the best program. They will pay for, they will use replacement parts. They, they pay out claims at a higher level. They have less claims. They have less hazards. But they are, uh, they, that, it's a publicly run program. And uh, I, so Saskatchewan okay. followed second. BC was after that. Alberta, Ontario, and then Alberta was last. Okay, thank, thank, thank you for that. This is like, music to the ears of the government here to hear a call like that because manitoba's got public auto insurance chris it depends on where you look too so we did a study a few years we got 30, back. 30 seconds chris sorry very quickly we did a quick study a few years back and quebec has a weird system where private insurers cover the physical car and the public covers the body they've apparently got the lowest in all of canada so it depends on where you look we just want an open competition we want choice people shouldn't be forced for this The heat's on. I think this is going to be a big issue going forward. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you. Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Had a lot of calls there. If you didn't get through, phone me on the buzz line. Leave me a voicemail there, 604-331-2899. Good news for Canadians now. In Wuhan, China, the federal government says it is preparing a plane to airlift Canadian nationals out out of that city in China in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak. So... How does an airlift work? Listen to this report now from CKNW contributor Claire Allen. The federal government is sending a plane to China to bring Canadians home from the region where a new coronavirus originated. We have secured a plane to repatriate uh, Canadians who so wish uh, to come back. Now the next step obviously is to work on the diplomatic front and the logistics obviously with our uh, Chinese counterparts. Uh, We are engaging in discussion as we speak. These airlifts are major operations, but having never participated in one, I was wondering how it all worked. For that information, I turned to Dr. Robert Quigley. He's the Senior Vice President and Regional Medical Director of International SOS. What's International SOS, you ask? Well, quite simply, if you need to be evacuated from a country, these are the people you call. International SOS is the world's largest uh, medical and security travel risk mitigation organization. They count nearly two-thirds of the Fortune Global 500 company as clients. They also serve NGOs and government organizations around the globe. So if you need to airlift citizens or employees out of a country, where do you even start? Here's Dr. Robert Quigley. It begins by having a network of agencies at your disposal globally with whom you can interface to choreograph and orchestrate such a massive evacuation. In this case, in Canada, there needs to be coordination on the ground with the local authorities, and that means the uh, local Chinese authorities, healthcare authorities, government authorities, uh, to get permission to even land an aircraft from Canada and then uh, have uh, individuals leaving Uh, the country, because as we speak right now, uh, the government has mandated that uh, the city is on a lockdown uh, in Wuhan, and people cannot come in, they can't leave. So there would be special permission would have to be granted to uh, facilitate the exit of the Canadians who are wanting to leave. So say you are one of those citizens who wants to leave. Where do you go? Is it a regular airport? Do you need a ticket? Do you have to present your passport? Well, typically in these kinds of massive evacuations, uh, we're not talking about using commercial aircraft. We're talking about using uh, private wide-body aircraft. And they land in different sites than the regular commercial airports. They land at what are called FBOs, 
and the FBOs are usually located in close proximity to the commercial airports, so there wouldn't be a lot of people uh, that would be uh, in the way or obstructing the progress of the individuals wanting to get on this aircraft. So more likely than not, uh, there would be uh, designated buses that are picking up the people at a designated uh, disembarkation site somewhere in Wuhan, and they would all travel en masse uh, to the FBO, and they would again be uh, interrogated and then put on the aircraft. So what kind of medical precautions is the Canadian government taking when it comes to the people boarding this flight? Nobody is going to be traveling if they're symptomatic, if they're actually ill. So more likely than not, uh, those individuals that are symptomatic um, Uh, they wouldn't be putting them on a plane. I think where the challenge is, is with those people who are not symptomatic, knowing that this virus has a uh, up to a 14-day incubation period, and we don't know as of yet whether or not the disease is contagious while it is uh, incubated. In other words, while somebody is asymptomatic. Dr. Quigley said the next step is to make sure that Canada is ready to accommodate a plane arriving with people who have already been exposed and possibly infected with the coronavirus. And that means there needs to be coordination with the public health agency in Canada and there needs to be representatives of that agency to accommodate and give permission for such an aircraft to arrive. And it doesn't just stop when the plane touches down. Quigley says that once the plane lands, passengers would have to meet with health officials. They would be uh, more likely than not uh, doing temperature screening and asking the passengers to fill out a questionnaire and then looking to see whether any of the individuals disembarking have signs consistent with a flu-like illness. And if the latter is the case, uh, those people would be uh, taken aside and more likely than not with a low threshold take it to a nearby hospital. Dr. Quigley says the discovery and spread of the coronavirus has meant that international SOS has been very busy. This is the kind of stuff that we saw with Ebola, with H1N1, uh, with SARS, with Zika. All of these uh, infectious diseases, which uh, unfortunately are cyclical, uh, they cause um, concern amongst uh, all stakeholders. But for us as an organization, we have to have a playbook that we follow. So we're, we're having to... Uh, ensure that we have uh, open uh, dialogues uh, with all of the uh, appropriate governmental agencies and uh, and we're collaborating uh, on a regular basis with both the CDC and the U.S. State Department because often they are uh, dictating best practices uh, that uh, we are to follow and we follow their direction. For AM 980 CKNW, I'm Claire Allen. All right, Claire, thank you for that.